Welcome to Creative Conversations. I'm Roger Humphrey. In this episode, I'm chatting with singer, keyboard player, saxophonist, Paul Ojibwe. Paul has worked as a sideman for some of the biggest names in the music business. He's smart, talented, and has some great stories to tell. You're gonna love him. We join in progress. <laughs> this isn't exactly, I'm not exactly Joe Rogan, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, but you know what, it, it, you know, to me, you're special to me because um, it, for as long as I can remember, since I was a little kid, you've been playing classical guitar masterfully. I mean, you were you were our master when I first heard you when I was a little kid. Oh, thank and, you. That, you know, just to, to have you around, I wish there was more people that could just uh, walk through a rose garden and, and hear you playing guitar. Um, but you've been doing it so wonderfully for so many years. And you just got, you've always had that wonderful vibe for it. So I really appreciate you. You know, it's interesting because guys like you and Steve Ferrari uh, have tried to get me up on stage and I've done it. I've gone up on stage, you know, and I bomb miserably because what I do is so different. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I, I have to I have to tell you that um, I was playing a wedding oh five six years ago and uh, and as and it was an outdoor wedding so people had to walk right past me to get to where they were going to be seated and so I had a couple guys probably just 23 24 years old straight out of college you know and they and kind of cocky full of themselves kind of thing and as they walk by they kind of listen stop and listen for a second and the one guy says to me, the other guy keeps going, and one guy stands there and he goes, <laughs> he says, do you play any Zeppelin? <laughs> and I and I didn't hardly look at him. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he started laughing, and his buddy says, what's so funny? So he told him, you know, he says, because he never expected an old guy playing, you know, some classical stuff that would say, well, yeah, I play Zeppelin, and I do. I didn't say I played it well, but <laughs> well, you know, on, on that note, on an artistic level, um, you know, it seems like uh, American society um, is uh, well, we're just kind of spoiled brats. So, uh, you know, if they see an old, an old gray-haired, bearded guy up playing an instrument, they're going to say, "Hey, play me some Taylor Swift." Yeah. You know, if they see you playing a piano, they're going to say, "Hey, play some Slipknot." They're going to ask for, you know, they're they're always going to indicate that uh, that what is in front of them is not, um, you know, that that they want more. They want something else. Oh, this isn't good enough. I want something else. And it's like you're lucky to have anyone show up and play you music at all anymore. You know, I had a, um, an experience with Jerry Glassell, who you remember, guitar? Yeah, sure. Uh, from Jackson. Yeah, uh, area. great jazz guy, yeah. And first time I ever saw him, I was at the Green Door playing with the Blue Avenue Delegates, which frequently allowed you know people to get up and sit in. I'd never seen Jerry before in my life, and uh, he approached the stage, and I, and I, I, I regret, or I, my thoughts were, and I shouldn't, but I was biased myself. I looked at him and I thought, well, what's this old farmer going to do? <laughs> 
right? <laughs> and we've all we've all done that. <laughs> right, right, right. So I'm judging you, right? Uh, and I shouldn't have. And then, of course, there's four young guys sitting at a table. And as soon as Jerry, you know, older looking, you know, with a little bit of a beer belly and, you know, just, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was probably in his 60s or, or about 60 or something when he walked up. And these punk kids were, play some ACDC, right? And this is before he played a note. Um, and without a word, he just kind of nodded his head and grinned. Without a word, he turned around to the Fender Twin amp that was behind him. He turned a few knobs. And then he stepped up to the front of the stage and he turned the volume up on his guitar and he hit the first chord and knocked those boys right out of their seats. <laughs> what he didn't know is that one of his teaching uh, methods was that he would have a student come to him and say, bring me any recording of whatever it is you're trying to make your guitar sound like. Doesn't matter what it is, just bring to me what it is that you're trying to emulate or what you're trying to get into. And we'll analyze it and we'll start by getting the right sound and then we'll work through the music but let's get the sound right to start with and so he was a master of dialing in a guitar sound um and, wow uh, so it was it was just wonderful to see that so judging a book by its cover <laughs> earlier about other artists that you speak to that often do things in private and it, it's that's really too bad it really is too bad. And I admit, I do the same thing myself um, because uh, we have this uh, this thing that we're fighting against. It's um, it's marketing um, of, of music that is uh, has become such a, you know, it's it's repressive. It's really repressive to say that I've played music since I was a child and learned as many instruments as I try to learn and just understand the vocabulary of music at the age of I'm 57 now. So where do I learn? Where do I go to with this what I've acquired in my music knowledge? How do I still grow at this age? And you know, in popular music, they've got um, uh, almost uh, a moratorium on using anything more than the basic three or four chords, you know, you know, they've got the uh, pop music, I call it the shell game, where they take maybe four chords and um, and cycle those four chords. Um, and, and and if you listen to popular music, you'll you'll hear those same chord movements in all different genres of music. And it's as if um, the people that are marketing music are um, kind of insulting the intelligence of the listeners that you're really not intelligent enough to take anything more complex than this. So. Yeah, I, the, thing, the thing that I'm finding also is that uh, working with students for so many years um, is I'm working with kids now who are 12, 13 years old who have discovered the Beatles and, and they want to learn Beatles music because it's so melodic and it's so much more complex than anything that they're being fed today. Now they like the music. They like the music that they listen to today. But music in general doesn't have the same uh, cultural uh, impact that it did when I was a kid. For crying out loud! I mean, I was listening to you know. I, I remember when the Beatles broke. <laughs> I, I watched them on on the old Ed Sullivan show, um, and so uh, uh, it was that was a cultural phenomenon. And uh, as much as many of the 
uh, artists today would like to believe they are a cultural phenomenon. They are not, and not in the same way at all, not even close. And, and the Beatles, there was Beatles merchandise all over the place in the 60s, but they didn't have much of anything to do with it. Somebody would come to them and, and license their name, or they would license, you know, and, and they, they would pay them for that, but they didn't have anything to do with it. And today the people are starting to, they don't think about their music, they think about their brand. And, um, and so it has very little to do with the art of music. I think of, um, uh, golly, in the late 60s and early 70s when you started having these concept albums and, and, uh, and take groups like uh, uh, oh, Rush and Triumph and, and, uh, and even like the Moody Blues, and the album became almost a compositional form like a sonata or a concerto. You know, I mean, it was, it was, they didn't think of a song or a collection of songs. They were thinking of one large package. That sort of started with Pet Sounds and, and, uh, and Sergeant Peppers and kind of moved its way. Uh, and it, and all of a sudden it fell apart and just, and it became, it became um, derogatory. The idea of a concept album became derogatory and everything became a collection of little tunes. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, you mentioned the Beatles and, and kids trying to get into that. And, um, you know, it seems as if um, there's a, uh, a moratorium on music where unless music is accompanied by a vocalist and someone with some lyrics, if it doesn't have vocals and if it doesn't have lyrics, then nobody wants to hear it. Um, or at least it won't be promoted, right? And for me, I love music itself. And to have someone say a word um, is disruptive to my psyche when I'm listening to music. So for instance, um, it's perhaps as if you're reading a book. When you're reading a book without illustrations, you make your own mind pictures, right? Right. And if illustrations there it kind of robs you of that creativity of the mind right right it, it kind of takes you by the hand and leads you somewhere where you may not want to go perhaps your own visions and your own uh pictures may be more elaborate they you know so by having uh lyrics you know words you know words have the power of life and death and so you know when you put lyrics in with music are we really putting any thought to it you know is does the you know, sometimes you'll hear somebody who has lyrics that are so eloquent and so poetic and so beautiful, and yet on a musical level, they're a terrible vocalist. Bob Dylan, for God's sakes. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Eloquent, eloquent, beautiful poetry. And, uh, you know, and if you could if you could get past his vocals and, you know, and the, the simple music of it, well, that was fine. Uh, you know, Bob did well, but his forte was his eloquence and is, is crafting of, of the spoken word. But um, I personally don't like to hear uh, vocals. I don't like to hear lyrics, unless, um, you know, with, uh, when, when, a when a vocalist is, is coupled with great music and a great melody, which is another craft that seems to have been lost. I mean, if you listen to the, to the soundtrack of the Wizard of Oz, for instance, and each piece of music has a uh, a, a melody all of its own. Uh, they don't really stand out. They're not, they don't sound grossly similar like we get in pop music. There's 
there's a real melody that goes with the music and so the um the the uh collaboration between uh composers and vocalists and lyricists you know you could have a, a phenomenal vocalist but maybe they're not eloquent or maybe they really don't have much to say you might have a great composer um who could probably write you a great melody but may not have the lyrics to go with it right but but, but if you're but if you're putting that together um it it should be crafted carefully and, and you can tell when someone's been at it for a lifetime and they're crafting they're putting their things together and you know and you can tell when somebody's uh, new and um there are a lot of people that are new and that's great and that's great but uh if you've been at music and at art for a lifetime where do you go to express yourself because what i play at home is not brown eyed girl and mustang sally <laughs> i would hope not <laughs> right it's it's entirely different and and i was known widely as a saxophone player right yeah but yet in in uh in recent years and spending a lot of time with my uh close friend uh, god rest his soul uh carl probst who is uh, a force of nature uh as a keyboard player and a creative mind just just a absolute uh force of nature and you know he loved instrumental music he liked to be able to stretch and to spend time with him um you know and his in his final times so I, I remember saying to him last days guy could you sprinkle me with some of that piano man <laughs> but during the pandemic um i spent a lot of time with my piano right and here's a stark contrast when you first saw me kicking around as a snot-nosed cocky little kid with a saxophone i would stand on street corners and play my saxophone in the process of doing that what was in my mind i could hear in my mind the background music the band playing uh -huh. if you will in my mind imaginary and i'm playing my horn with that imagining this groovy this groove section playing a nice pocket behind me and I'm just grooving through it, you know? Um, and that was imaginary. The saxophone was actually only bringing one voice to break the silence, just the saxophone only. Now, after years of, uh, of taking in and learning so many other people's music and taking in whatever chord voicings and anything that I could find to use in my toolbox, now playing piano i can i can use more than one voice you know i've got 10 fingers to work with and uh not to mention if, once you hit a sustain pedal it'll hold on to whatever note you laid down so you can lay down a lot of voicing with a piano and so that's uh, if for me i've been in a quest of trying to find beauty on the piano and so i also have this experience of when i'm playing i imagine the saxophone. I imagine <laughs> that I'm accompanying a vocalist or imagine that I'm accompanying a soloist, right? There's more in my head than what you hear me playing it as I'm playing it. And the most delightful thing for me is to play in real time. And I'm at that stage in my life where I've cr had so much music crammed into me that I would play for weddings and events and I've learned music that I would only play 
that I would never personally listen to myself. If I heard right. it on the video, I'd probably change, turn it off or change the channel. But you cram all that in and okay, well, I got through it, but now I've, I did learn from it, right? Yeah. I remember um, having to learn a piece of music for uh, uh, a wedding and, um, and I was just cringing absolutely cringed uh at the thought that i had to learn a barbara streisand song <laughs> right i cringed i was like oh my god shoot me now right <laughs> however um when i listened to the piece of music it really struck me that well if you think about it barbara streisand's been a a, a star for how long right She's a hollywood star Right. So when she lifts her finger to do anything, and if she goes in the studio to record a piece of music, she's going to have behind her the best arrangers on the planet. Right. And so when I heard just the intro to the piece of music, I spent a whole day, and I've got some pretty good ears, I spent a whole day studying the intro. Right? And when I heard the... um a recording of the song in its original form. Uh, it was quite simple. Uh -huh. the music was quite simple. But if you listen to the arrangement on the Barbara Streisand recording, some arranger came through with the orchestra and did brilliant, brilliant jazz chords and chord voicings and um, chords that created such tension. Things that I would, uh, chord voicings that I never would have dreamed up myself. And it took me all day to figure out, <laughs> right? What on earth is that? And I have, I'm pretty familiar with right. jazz chord voicings. And I was hearing stuff that I've never heard before. And the outro was yet, I spent another day on the <laughs> outro. Now so, learning, learning the meat of the song, I could have done that in 10 or 15 minutes. Right, right. Right, so there's, there's so much more, uh, more there. But the cool thing is, is those, what I had learned from those pieces of music there are things that I, I took in and I still have those in my toolbox. So when I'm playing in real time, I'm taking everything that I've ever acquired. Right. And, and applying. And it's, it's letting the dog run off the leash. <laughs> It's a great way to put it. I love it. I love it. I don't. I know that that uh, for me it was the same thing. Um, playing all those weddings for all those years, and people, you know, I'm, I'm a classical guy, but people would ask me to play a, 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 you know, pop tunes here and there, and I found that that's you know sometimes the architect. I have to strip everything away. You know, I got to get get it down to six strings and 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 a couple of fingers. You know, that's all I've got to work with, and and so I've got to I've got to scrape it down to the bone and see what's there, and then and then rebuild it, and um, and so I found there's some songs that are great songs, but only because they're the arranging is cool and the way it's. I mean, I remember very clearly uh, having to do uh, Leonard Skinner's "Simple Man," and uh, and trying to do that as an instrumental. Well, if you go back and listen to it, there's nothing there. I mean, it's a great song. All the playing is really cool, and and, and you know, and if you're into that kind, of, the, the the words are cool. But I took, I have to take all the words out because I'm not going to sing it. 
and you take it down to the melody and a chord structure and you got a couple of chords and a melody that's about four measures long and that's all you've got to work with <laughs> and it just repeats it just just keeps recycling and and so so the the final product for Skinner is a great song if you're in the audience and they start playing that you're gonna go yeah that's really cool but when I got to do it by myself as a solo guitar thing there's just not a heck of a lot there to work with and uh, and it's oh, I, I think you are so on to something that so many musicians are called upon to translate yeah I call that translating where you know um, let's just say for instance a, a guitar piece right oh, here's a nice classical guitar piece but they want me to play piano so now I've got to translate that right to, to a piano um, and, and like what, what you're saying about taking something um, and trying to make it sound familiar when there's really not much there right in with so it's trying to find a translation i used to have people bring to me um uh well it's just back when i attended a church and it, it has since closed down because the building was falling apart and uh but they used to bring to me um christian contemporary music which was basically a rock band you know bass drums guitar keys yeah. bunch of vocalists yeah and um i had piano and that's all just piano right. and so i had to translate this rock band down to uh piano and um and to me it was a bit annoying where it's like couldn't you at least uh send me a youtube link of a piano version of this yeah yeah and i had I, I had a, a, a and I've told this story many times and, I, and I've laughed about it for years. Uh, this is probably about 15 or so years ago. Uh, uh, I contracted to do a wedding and, and a couple of months before the wedding, the bride contacted me and said her fiance's favorite song was from Led Zeppelin called Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. And I thought, and so they wanted to know if I could play that at the wedding. And I went, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> But you know, if you're if she's okay with it and she's signing the check, I'll, you know, I'll play it. You know, but so anyway, I went and listened to it. I'm not that familiar with it. I'm, I know that I know the basic Zeppelin catalog, but I, I I I've never really done a deep dive on their stuff. And so I I found the song YouTube and found you know listened to it and I downloaded the chords and and uh, and, and was listening to it. Well, I I finally did it and I thought, man, there just is there isn't anything here enough for me to get a hold of. I mean, it's if you're into that kind of thing, it's a great song. So anyway, I worked up a version of it, and they wanted it during the pre-service, not during the ceremony itself. <laughs> and so anyway, the groom is talking to somebody, and he's standing right in front of me. I mean, I could reach out and tug his coattails, and he's right there in front of the microphone, on, or on the other side of the microphone, just right there. So I break into this song. He keeps jabbering away at his at his buddy. And halfway through the song, they walk out, and they walk out of the building to go have a cigarette. And he came to me. He came to me after the ceremony, and he said to me, he said, he said, you played great. He said, you're really a great player. But he said, he said, I really was hoping that you were going to play that Led Zeppelin tune. <laughs> and I started laughing. I said, dude, you were standing right in front of me, and I was playing it, and you never heard a note of it. And he, and he just looked at me. He says, really? And I said, yeah. I mean, you, you were right there. And I says, you walked away. But the nature of the song changes so much. When you take that arrangement away and try to do it, a little acoustic nylon string guitar, um, it, it, the, the whole attitude behind a song will change significantly. 
And well, that, is, that, that, that is really a, 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 a textbook example of what I was talking about before, where a people in general society just want something that's just not in front of them. You know, uh, you're there with a, you're a fine classical guitarist that, that plays wonderfully with classical music. OK, well, you've got a, a you know, a classical guitarist. And, and you're asking him to take the form of John bon, bon, Bonham and, you know, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and, and oh, God, the bass player. Come John on. Paul Jones. Was it? John Paul Jones. Yeah, thank you. You know, I mean, it, it's, that's, for God's sakes, it's a rock band. And you have, a, you know, a fine classical guitarist. You know, enjoy, you know, enjoy what you have. You know, and, and they're asking you to, to, to transform into... And, you know, for people to expect, um, you know, musicians and performers to make these great transformations without ever really looking um, to see what's really there. And for instance, um, I'm still playing, you know, out and I, I love all kinds of music, but I have, then there's me, right? Yeah. So often, uh, you know, I, I have a wonderful time playing with Raz and Bill Fuller doing country music. The three piece, a left hand bass and piano and harmonica, if I can, a little singing. Those guys do the rest. Rass is singing a ton of lead vocals on country music songs that I never would have made it through if he wasn't guiding me through them singing. <laughs> and I can actually follow him. He knows the melodies well enough where the melodies pretty much dictate the re the, the chord movement. So it's a it's a wonderful thing in real time to have them pull music on me that I've never heard before. And, you know, I have someone, guy standing next to me familiar with it. You know, Bill Fuller will go, go to the two, go to the five, he'll call it some chord changes and we'll get through it. But um, the thing is, is that what I do at home, left to my own devices, is so drastically different than anything else. And then there's just no, no venue for it, right? There's just no venue for it. Um, so, you know, I mean, I would love to be able to just walk into a beautiful room where there's a grand piano and and just do what I do in real time. You know, I saw I saw Chuck Berry on the, the old Tonight Show with Johnny Carson years ago. And um, uh, and I've never I, I, I love to be able to ask Bob Baldori about this because he knew Chuck so well. But um, uh, uh, Chuck Berry was sitting there and the, they just come back from a commercial break and the band had been playing and they were doing great. And he said to Johnny Carson, he said, I love that. He says, I, he says, I really wish, you know, that I could have, be a jazz player. And Johnny says, can't you Chuck Berry, you can do anything you want. He says, play jazz. And Chuck said to him, he says, no. He said, people don't pay money to hear Chuck Berry play jazz. They pay money to hear Chuck Berry play Chuck Berry songs. And, right. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, there it is in a nutshell, but how many of us, we do, we, we know what we have to do to make a living you know, and uh, and so we go out and do that. But what we do when the door's closed, when we're when we're at home alone, you know, or when we're with our close friends, may very well be very different from that. And uh, um, uh, and I think uh, I, I guess I get a little tired sometimes of somebody who is lucky enough to get famous, uh, and they ask them how you doing. They, they will say, and particularly if it's somebody young, you know, somebody under thirty. Well, you know, there will be people that tell you you can't do it, but you just have to stay with your dreams, you know, and you go, no, it just doesn't always work that way. You got lucky, sweetheart. 
<laughs> and I mean, you you do have to stick to your guns up to a point, but but there's a trade-off somewhere along the line. I know a lot of jazz guys that would never play anything but jazz, but they will they will always live financially on the edge. They they you you have to you have to consciously make a decision that you're going to do without certain material things in your life, and and if you're if you're willing to make that decision and go in that direction, then then you can stay with it. But you very rarely do you get a chance to to really you know grab the brass ring. You know I think that there are a lot of people out there that uh, um, are very good at what they do and and never really for whatever reason never got the chance. Some of them just bad attitude or just self destructive or you know any number of other reasons why. Can I can, in bad attitude, self destructive, some way they screwed up. Yeah. That's a perception. Okay. From personal experience, let me give you a perspective. Okay. Uh, oh, let's pick somebody. Let's pick uh, Garth Brooks. Okay. Who plays drums for Car Garth Brooks? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Who plays bass for Garth Brooks? Who cares? Right. You know, uh, pick anybody, right. any star. Uh, Christina Aguilera. Who's right. her, who plays piano for her? Right. Who cares? Right. Right. And so you've got the person in the spotlight that that uh, the star. Right. And some people are cut out for that. Some people are good band leaders. Yeah. Right. Some people are good musical directors. Some people are just good, good to have, you know, a sound audio guy around, you know, and a lot of musicians, you know, people that are out there playing on the big stages, on the world stages, traveling everywhere. Yeah, sure. They are, um, uh, they're like shoes, you know, they change them out. These stars, they swap out their the people in their band because it's not like the Beatles, John, Paul, Ringo, and, and George. Yeah. No? Uh, they're, they're individuals. They were an actual a unit, a band. You know, if one of them doesn't show up for the gig, you know, you know who didn't show up. Right. 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 Um, but now, uh, you know, it's music is marketed in such a way where you've got um, that one person in the spotlight. And the thing is, you have to really want that spot center stage. To stand oh, yeah. On yeah. Under the spotlight, you got to really want to be there, um, and so there are people like me that you know, I, I, you know, I'm a musician. I'm one of the guys in the band, right? Um, yeah, I sing lead vocals, but I don't really want to go up there and stand in the spotlight. You know, I don't want my name on the marquee. I can care less about that. You know, I just want to play good music. But um, if you go out and do that, and you don't wind up let's just of course you know i was on tv yeah sure and you know i played a couple of really big venues yeah i saw you, i saw you woodstock 25th anniversary so yeah you know and it's right so so but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden you're the star you can go out and work with stars you can go out and be on a, on the on the great tv show that doesn't mean that you all of a sudden you've launched into that center but center stage center right. stage spot right right and and you gotta want it and if you don't want it right i i i just love playing music right music exactly uh -huh. i i don't love being uh, um you know uh in a crowd <laughs> you know I, I don't love being in a crowd you know i could do without the crowd you know I, look i i i love having an audience right 
But. Well, you know, when when I was a kid, I've told people this, and they think I'm nuts, but when I was a kid, my idea of, quote, making it, unquote, was to find a club that I could call home four or five nights a week and go sit in a corner and play my music, and you could just throw me a cookie once in a while, and I, <laughs> I would, I, I was, and I'd be happy, you know. I didn't, I didn't need a spotlight on me. I didn't anybody need anybody to announce to me, ladies and gentlemen, present. Nah, none of that nonsense. I just wanted to sit in a corner and play music. And when I was much younger, uh, um, uh, I know, you know, I grew up. Uh, well, I got my first guitar in 1958, um, and and uh, and. I've had a number of people ask me, well, you know, you're trying to be another Elvis Presley. I could have cared less about Elvis Presley. The guy that was on TV all the time was Ricky Nelson. And the guy standing next to him was James Burton. And he looked like he was having the time of his life. And I, and I pointed to James Burton. I couldn't see myself as Ricky Nelson, but I looked at James Burton and I went, that's the job I want. I want to be standing right next to the guy who's taking all the heat. And I want to be smiling all the way through it and cash those checks at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's great. I remember, um, uh, you know, perception, you know, people's perception. I was, um, I was signed, they, there was an artist who was signed to MC Hammer's record label. Okay. And was DMDB. This is back in, oh, gee, 1989, maybe. Okay. And um, I got the call to go play with her. Well, we were at, this is when MC Hammer was really hot. Uh -huh. And he was, she had, I don't know, several different acts signed to his record label. And when he went out on tour, um, we went with him on a Canadian adventure, right? Okay. There were 150, 150 people in this whole show. That's crew, bands, and everybody. And our group was the warm-up band for MC Hammer. And um, out of the 150 people, there were only two white people, and one was me, and the other was the front of house sound guy. Uh huh. At the end of the show, there was people back, you know, backstage area uh, wanting to just, you know, talk to anybody that was part of the show. And there was somebody. I just want to. I just want to meet a band member. And I was like, and I'm thinking, gee. I was standing on the front edge of the stage playing a sax solo, strolling up and down, looking at, you know, the people in the eye. And was it hard to pick me out of the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> I just walked out of the backstage door. I was just, you know, playing the music, playing an instrument right in your face. And you're like, just want to talk to somebody in the band. And like, wow. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, that was a moment. That was <laughs> That's... That's hilarious, but oh, I got stories from the road. Oh man, oh my God! Mm. Well, you've worked There's with so a, many roads. You've worked with a lot of famous people. I I laugh. Uh, my grandkids uh, have listened to some of these podcasts and some of the people that I've spoken to over the years, and uh, and and they and uh, and they'll they'll listen to this one and they'll they'll come back to me and they'll go. You know all of these stars? And I go, no, but I know people who know them. I mean, I, I don't know anybody famous, but I know a whole lot of people who do know famous people. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of second generation here. You know? <laughs> well, and then and then there's the famous people who know the famous people. Okay. Yeah. Here's no no. Here's uh, let me just okay. Let me toss a couple road stories out. Okay. So uh, Mike Tyson. Yeah. Right. He knew somebody that 
the star I was working with and would come to a couple of shows. Well, one time he stepped up on the tour bus and one of the backup singers got into it with him. Oh. It was a healthy, it was, it was a friendly, uh, a friendly volley of your mama. Your mama. Oh, just, <laughs> oh yeah, well, your mama. Oh, yep. yeah, well, your mama. <laughs> you know, oh, God, you know, Mike Tyson, he, he, want, he just ended the game with, oh, yeah, your mama's armpits so hairy, she looked like she got buckwheat in a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Tyson, KL right there. Um, another thing, uh, like there's some of the people you meet in the in the dressing room, and not always under the best circumstances. Uh, we're on the road. We've been. Uh, we're hungry. We're tired. We have to hurry up and get in the venue. Hurry up and get dressed and get up on stage. Right. Um, the only food we'd seen in maybe 18 hours is a is a sub a deli sandwich sitting there on the you know on the dressing room table. Right. And I have an option. Should I eat my sandwich because I'm starving or should I get dressed and get ready for the show and then eat, right? I figured I better be ready. Let's get ready for the show first. And then if I got time, let me try and get some of the sandwich down. I get dressed and I turn around and there's a guy standing there eating my sandwich. It had my name on it, right? <laughs> and I said, what the hell are you doing? He said, I'm eating a sandwich, I'm hungry. I said, that's my sandwich. One of the guys in the band tapped me on the shoulder. Well, that's Evander Holyfield. And I said, I don't give a shit. He's eating my sandwich. <laughs> right? <laughs> Another one was, um, there's this theater in the round. Oh, God, what's the name of the place? It's in, uh, it's, it's in uh, Long Island. And, oh, I wish I could remember the name of the venue. It's a rotating stage, a round venue. Um, so another person comes out to hear the person that I'm working with and, uh, she comes backstage into the dressing room because she's a star and she's not going to use just the regular person's dressing room. She's going to go backstage and use the clean, nice bathrooms. Right. Um, so I'm standing there in my underwear and this lady walks in, you know, and I'm like, hello, excuse me, you're lost. She said, no, I'm just here to use the restroom. I said, the restroom's out in the hallway, lady. Right? <laughs> and one of the guys go, hey, man, man, be cool, man. That's Patty LaBelle. And I knew it was Patty LaBelle, right? But I said, but I'm in my underwear. <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're acting like I don't know who it is I'm talking to. But look, if I walked into Patty LaBelle's dressing room and she was in her underwear, how do you think she'd speak to me? <laughs> and I was pretty polite, but I was a matter of fact. It's like, excuse me, you're lost. Oh, I'm just here to use the restroom. No, it's out there. <laughs> and she just kind of grinned and went on and used our restroom anyways, you know. Um, but, you know, little things like that. You run into people, um, you know, famous people. I can tell you, um, just I want to toss out a couple little shout outs. Okay. Um, Sammy Hagar's group. Yeah. You know, when I was touring with Mark Farner, we did a lot of classic rock shows. Okay. And we got to play with all these different people, Blue Oyster Cult, God bless them. Um, uh, you know, BTO and, and God, all these guys, man. Jeez, old peach. But Sammy Hagar's people, from the sound guy and monitor guy to Sammy and his, all his group members, were the sweetest people on the planet. And I don't know if it was like number one policies, you just have to be a nice person. 
but um, they were widely known. Uh, they were refreshing. They affected everyone in their midst, right? That helps. You could, you could get around people that are big rock stars that are short-tempered and bitch and cuss in the backstage yeah. area. And these people were so wonderfully cheerful, happy, smiley, generous, fun to be around. Wow. And I'll say exactly the same thing about Marshall Tucker's group, the Marshall Tucker people. Wow. They came back and they made the whole backstage area feel like family. If you were a musician, if you were the monitor man, if you were the guy taking the trash out in the backstage area, you were still treated like, hey, we're all here together. Here, have a sandwich. And hey, where are you from? Just the sweetest people. Wow. Um, there are some people that were so amazing. And then some were that, that were just absolutely evil. You know, some people that you just wouldn't think would just be so awful. Just My goodness, really. It's, it's you know, we hear these stories, you know, and, and of course, uh, uh, the general public just can't get enough of those stories one way or another. You know, it's just their their entire YouTube channel is devoted to that kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> and uh, but it's always nice to hear. We the salacious stuff is the stuff that seems to sell, but it's always nice to hear. You know that there are nice people out there and that they exist and they make good music and they make our lives uh, so much easier. You know, as as musicians. You know. Uh, it, the, the, the cool thing about, you know, Sammy Hagar's people and, and the Marshall Tuck, Tucker people is that um, is that treating people with decency is more important uh, to them. It's more important than their career. It's more important than music. It's more it's just it's really like a, a number one way to live. Yeah, how to live it right. You know, just be cheerful, be optimistic. I mean, we got struggles, but, you know. It's just when you get around people like that, it makes even a bad situation so much better. Oh, yeah. And a good situation even better that still. You know, it's it's uh, uh, and when you're with people like that, you don't want to not be with them. I mean, you just really enjoy your time with them. So that's to me, that's 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 I, I mean, I've always felt that way. It's just trying to be I mean, it's easy to be a jerk. It doesn't take much to be a jerk, uh, but uh, you don't get much out of it. You know, you can walk away feeling somehow more empowered for a while but you also find yourself really lonely really quick you know it's just a whole lot easier just to to be to be nice to people and you just never know when they're going to be nice back <laughs> yeah because i mean even the most talented of people i mean if they're if they're just mean oh you know i mean yeah. who cares yeah at that point you know i did i did um uh, a guitar program at a local prison um Oh, probably thirty plus years ago, and I was I was there for a couple of years until the funding ran out. Uh, and and I would hang out and talk to the prisoners after a while for a short time after after the class. And I can remember this one guy, and he was older than me at the time. Um, and and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I had forgotten that there were nice people in the world. Yeah, it's just just to bring that into the prison, just to be a nice person, to be respectful, to be pleasant, to have a pleasant conversation uh, with with another adult was something that he hadn't experienced in a couple of years. That it was just you know everything was in your face and stand your ground and and you know and <coughs> and uh, he uh, uh, was just appreciative of the fact that he was 
you know, being talked to in a nice fashion without anybody being rude or duplicitous or, you know, because, I mean, even the guards can get pretty rude at times, you know, and, uh, uh, and you know, and I just, that, that, that statement has stuck with me all these years. Just, it's just refreshing. I'd forgotten, you know, that there were still nice people in the world. You know, what a, it, it, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it? I, I saw a guy on the corner down here hit a pothole last year. Uh-huh. And and it tore the front end right off his pickup truck. Oh man. It blew out his tie rods. And so sure. the front end of his truck's laying on the ground and I stopped <laughs> it. I stopped to talk to the guy and I'm like, Man, if I was you, I'd be mad as hell about that pothole. Sure. And and the guy said, Well, I could be, but what good would that do? <laughs> and he was so cheerful and just a sweet, nice guy. He didn't, you know. Some people would be cussing up a cussing up the street, but here's a good old country boy, and he's like, "Well, blew up the front end of my truck," you know. And he was <laughs> about it. Hell, I went back home, grabbed a shovel, raced back there, and we grabbed some dirt and filled that. We filled that hole with with dirt and rock. He and I, he goes, "Oh, I got a shovel in the back of the truck." So we sat there and both of us filled that hole. <laughs> road work but uh, yeah. yeah but there was a problem and you fixed it you know i mean it's you know it's a, a, at least a temporary fix so nobody else has to lose you know so you go through life doing little things like that you know you see a piece of trash on the sidewalk you pick it up and you throw it away because somebody has to or it's just going to float around and and uh, that you know doesn't make you a goody two shoe and it doesn't you know it just means you know just being a responsible citizen and uh and that's you know and trying to be a nice person i've you know, I was very fortunate to be raised by nice people, and uh, uh, and so being nice, and I mean, I lose my temper. I, I, you know, I get I get very angry very quickly over over little things, not big things, but little things. Uh, and something like that pothole would would really make me angry for probably about ten minutes, and then I'd be over, and then I'd be grabbing a shovel and filling it in. I mean, it's you know, I I got it, that for me, I have to get it out of my system, but I don't do that to people. You know, I might I might get angry at a pothole, but you know, it's it's like uh, uh, yeah. I'm I'm yeah. not I'm not going to get you know I'm not going to start you know throwing rocks at people because there's a, a hole in the road right. you know yeah. so yeah. Uh, okay. it's okay to get angry but just, but here's another thing too is that is that um, some people think it's okay uh, to express their anger and it's just like a shit sprinkler. You know, and, just, you know, and they just want to complain and bitch about everything. You know, it just it just, it just gets everybody in the in the midst of it. Uh, in our house, we don't yell. Uh, we don't yell at each other. There's no fussing, arguing, yelling, shouting matches. Uh, anger doesn't live here. Not in this house. It just I, doesn't. I envy you. Happy existence here, and so when somebody who's an angry person that would like, you know, maybe get in a passionate, you know, political conversation and start rah, 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 getting all upset. See, that doesn't fit here. It's really, really, really out of place. So uh, people, angry people just, it stands out in this house. You know, it's like, okay, I can see you're not really having a good time. Well, thanks for stopping by. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can, I want to, I want to share with you, um, you know, I, I, I get angry too. And once I get, sometimes I can get pissed at a drop of a hat and it takes a while to cool down. Uh -huh. right? Um, and I had somebody fast track that once on a show and, and I got to share with you, I, I was, 
I had a rage where I was just seeing blood red. I was just so mad, just so angry. Um, I was on stage with Mark Farner, playing God knows where in the middle of a field out somewhere with bikers everywhere, you know, just a sea of bikers. And it was hot, hot, hot. It must have been 95 degrees and 100% humidity. Just a haze, hot, hot. We're up there playing, and out of nowhere comes this storm cloud. It just appears. And we could feel it. You see the wind coming across the field, and we could see this white uh, curtain of solid rain coming across the field. And, you know, uh, Mark, well, he's a force of nature himself. He just kept right on playing. Um, we saw <laughs> it was like this just torrential rain this rainfall hits us. And we're under a canopy. There's a canvas canopy overhead over the stage. And I'm far stage right. And the canopy's filling up with water, right? And the wind is gusting, right? And um, and I know that there's, you know, that there's water over my head. Uh -huh. A giant gust of wind hits, and I went, oh my God. And I look straight up just to have what would be the equivalent of four or five bathtubs full of water. <laughs> it came straight down on me. And I'm standing right next to the power amps and the power uh, transformers. Oh, that's good. Yeah. All over the, and I'm standing in a puddle of water over, the, over by this stuff. I'm soaking wet. And all that water um, came straight down on my keyboard rig. And I had no idea, but these controllers that I was using at the time each one of them could hold like two liters of water inside the chassis, right? Oh, wow. So I was really angry because uh, people that were there went to Mark's rescue, the bass player's rescue, the drummer's rescue, and I'm the one that's standing right next to the phone, <laughs> standing on top of all the electrical and wires, <laughs> completely ignored. They just left me off the, you know. Um, so I did run across the stage and play. Mark had a keyboard on the other side of the stage, and I ran over and played the rest of the show on his. So after the show, I was a bit upset about trying to find out where's the line between at what point do you throw in the towel with lightning and thunder. And <laughs> so, but I was just really upset about my stuff kind of getting ruined on stage. And so I had the screwdrivers out and I opened up these keyboards and there were like, two liters of water and he's keyboard <laughs> and i'm just fighting mad and i'm cussing up a storm as i'm draining the waters out uh, one of the stage hands comes over big old country boy and he goes man i saw you out there and i felt so bad for you out on that stage i saw you get soaked with all that big that big you know uh waterfall come down on you i felt so bad for you oh man he goes is there anything i can do for you and i was like no and he says, and then his last ditch effort to get me something, right? To do something for me. He says, and mind you, I'm pouring two liters of water out of my keyboard and I'm soaking wet head to toe. Right? Yep. Got I, it. He looks at me sincerely with pity and sympathy. And he says, can I get you some water? <laughs> I instantly, I instantly flossed and I just bust into laughter. And I laughed so hysterically. <laughs> I was in tears for <laughs> half hour straight. And it was instant. As soon as he'd said that, and he really meant it. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was being sincere. And his sincerity and his kindness 
Um, and just the fact that he happened to just ironically offer me water. It just, I went from being just fighting mad in a rage to just hysterically laughing. And God bless that kid, wherever he was. His timing could have been better. And that was accidental, but God, I needed that. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful story. My God, that's a funny story. I saw, I saw Bonnie Ray at, uh, uh, in East Lansing. Uh, at the old Michigan festival that, that they used to do at Michigan State. And uh, it had been threatening crap all day long. And she got out on stage and she sang about four songs. And it started to cut loose. And she she went through one more song and then she just announced, she said, look, she said, I'd stand right here and play for you right through all of this. But she said, my band won't let me. She said, they're, they're making me go off stage. So she says, if it, if it quits in a few minutes, I'll be back out. If not been good to see you <laughs> and uh, and uh, but but uh, and then there's a famous um, clip of Diana Ross uh, doing a concert in Central Park and a storm hit and I mean she's standing there and her it looks like a cartoon I mean her hair is just going right straight back and she's standing right there and singing into the microphone and it's just ripping and roaring and and somebody came out and said we've got to get off stage you know it's dangerous and she turned around and she said i have spent my whole life to get here i am not leaving now <laughs> and, but you know and here's the thing is is that's the kind of thing right there where like you've got the guys on the stage that might be like you know like that scenario where i was in i was really my life was in danger because i'm right. standing in the puddle next to the, the power supplies right right um, that was a life-threatening situation, and yet the band played on. And I'm like, hey, at what point do you, say, <laughs> you know, do, do, you know, because, it, and of course, Mark left it to me. He says, well, you know, you decide, and if it's too dangerous for you, then you know, then then, then step out. And I'm thinking, oh, great, throw me under the bus, <laughs> down, you know. Um, but I, you know, I had another uh, same working with Mark. We were in another place, and we were. Uh, the opening band had gone on and there was a little sideshow act in between bands while we're doing the you know stage changeover and it was the wet t-shirt contest now if you think of the midwest and a biker festival you know that's something that's pretty common with a biker right. festival uh -huh. that is, it they just might have a wet t-shirt <laughs> so they were have passed the round one okay of the whoever was you know the contestants and now they were down to the final contestants of of round two and even the round one people were still standing around when this they were no one was really noticing the storm cloud that was developing over us because it was again a hazy hot summer day and it was a wet t-shirt contest <laughs> in, the, in the midst of this whole field you know it started sprinkling right uh-huh but it wasn't enough it still seemed kind of sunny, but it wasn't enough to make anyone scatter. But uh, here they were, the final contestants. And of course, this time, everyone's half naked. And a bolt of lightning hit right in the middle of the field. All those people were standing in. And I don't know how in the world nobody got hit by that bolt of lightning. But everybody scattered. And we were in this performance shell, you know, uh, in the middle of the field, amphitheater kind of thing. And um, so all the contestants ran to the back of the, we all ran to the back of the, uh, uh, the, the structure. And so the, we were forced to be standing backstage with, I don't know, 30 or 40 half naked people just standing around in the, in the storm. 
Probably um, should have got workman's comp for that. Well, you know, <laughs> it, you know, it was one of those things where, like, you know, if I didn't take a picture, no one would believe this, <laughs> right? So I took a few snapshots of my phone thinking, hey, you know, and I kind of got a yuck out of it showing some friends and stuff. But then, I, you know, uh, and of course, and I didn't want to hide the whole thing from my wife, but I could see that my wife wasn't really impressed with those photos. <laughs> I deleted them. So. <laughs> I want to thank Paul for taking the time to appear on this program. Spending time with Paul is always a treat. It's also a treat to have you join us. I hope you'll listen to other episodes of Creative Conversations with Roger Humphrey.